Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, November 29th, the Family Game Night Edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm the editorial director of Slate Podcast, and I'm the father of Leo, who is four, and Eliza, who just turned eight. Happy birthday, Eliza. Happy birthday. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 17, Teddy, who is 15 and a half, and my stepdaughter, Lily, who is 18. And I'm Carvo Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 13, and Ezra, who is 15. Today on our show, we'll talk to writer Noel Murray about Slate's package, the 40 greatest family games. What games should you be playing with your kids, and what games should you be sure to avoid? Uh, We've also got a question from a listener. What do you do when your atheist family has a very religious in-law who insists on saying grace? Plus, as always, we'll have triumphs and fails. We'll make recommendations. And on Slate Plus this week, more dish on Teddy Lavoie's love life. If you want to hear that segment, (laughs) slate.com slash mom and dad plus. First up, triumphs and fails. Carvel, you want to go first? Triumph or fail? Yeah, I want to say, uh, yeah, I, have a, I feel like there's been a long, the, a fail in general um, that's just been, it's just been really weird, the mood here. I think part of this is like the, the seasonal effective stuff, which I feel like is kind of getting to everyone. I don't usually get that. And I know that sounds weird in California, but um, it's been cold and rainy and that's part of it. But I also think a part of it is that we literally just went through an experience where the entire Bay Area had to wear gas masks 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I think, if I'm being honest, that put everyone in a little bit of a weird mood. And I can feel that weirdness through everyone. And that was kind of how people went through their Thanksgiving break. Um, and I just feel like everyone's been struggling a little bit. So the way this is manifested in my little family is that I mentioned last week that Ezra made this film and he I dropped him off to make it. He did all this planning. It was his project from beginning to end. What he didn't tell me, because it was, it was like the day before we recorded that I had gotten sort of like, he said, oh, it went fine. And then as I investigated further after we recorded last week, I found out that it didn't go fine. Actually, he they ended up not completing, completing the shoot in its entirety. And he was thinking about editing together what he had, but he decided not to. And part of the reason that they didn't complete the shoot is because the people he was working with didn't like his script that he wrote. And like... Ezra is an, is an artist and like artists, instead of sort of being like, well, you know, that's my first time ever trying to like do something fully from scratch with no team and support. It didn't work out. Let's go into it. He took it as, well, this is a sign that I will never do anything of use again. I have no purpose on this earth. Nothing matters. Why do I even exist? Why are we here? What's the point? And so he lapsed into something of a depression afterwards, which I was I fully relate to. I fully relate to trying to do a creative project and having it not go according to your grand visions. And then as a result, lapsing into a multi-day depression. And that's what seems to have happened to him. So 
over Thanksgiving break was sort of like that. And then Monday came about and it was time to return to school, which, of course, no one was happy about because they had their their break wasn't just a week. It was like a week plus three days because they had or no, rather two days because they had two days off because of the smoke. They should have had a whole week off because of the smoke, because the smoke was bad all week. But finally, school school districts relented on Thursday and Friday and admitted that that, you know, the fact that the Bay Area had the worst air quality on the planet meant that kids shouldn't have to go to school. Anyway, so they ended up having this long break. They were not happy Sunday night to go to school. So Sunday night, I go to Ezra. You know what? I think I'm going to, instead of letting you walk to your late class, because he changed the schedule so that he doesn't take a first period class, so he walks to school. I said, you know, you've been late. We know that at the end of the semester, you're going to go back to having a first period class because you screwed this up. No offense, but you did. So starting tomorrow, I'm going to pick you up and take you to school. And he said, you're right, Dad. I got it. I haven't really been able to get there on time. I tried. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. He was all contrite. So Monday comes along. He's not ready. He stayed up all night the night before. He was really depressed. He said he couldn't sleep. He said he was just like, he couldn't, he like stayed up. He slept two hours. He said that he was up all night thinking about how he's never going to make it as a filmmaker and everything sucks and all this stuff. So when I came to get him Monday morning, he wasn't ready. I got him in the car he made Georgia late for school. Georgia was mad about that. She hasn't had to deal with that for months. It was the same thing all over again. So we drop him off. Tuesday comes along and I text him the night before on Monday, on Tuesday night, on Monday night to say, I'm picking you up tomorrow. Be ready. And he doesn't respond. So Tuesday comes along. I go, I go there. I go upstairs to get him. He's not even out of bed yet. And I'm like, dude, come on. And he just unloads on me. He just snaps at me. Dad, this is so unfair. I can't believe you're making me do this. Like, I was going to have a chill morning and you're freaking me out. And it's just like, I have enough stress already. And you don't understand where I'm coming from. You don't understand my life. It was just like this total breakdown. And I was so mad at him for just not being ready that it was so hard for me to hear where he was coming from. I should have relented in that moment, but I didn't quite. But I did just say, I did have the wisdom to say, look, okay, I'm not going to take you to school. You're going to have to walk. If you're, if you're late, you're late. I don't care. And I left. And then the, the, then we had this kind of conversation over text where he was kind of like explaining, like, I'm really upset. I don't know what's happening. I just feel really angry. And I was like relented a little bit, like, okay, I know you're upset, but you can't, that's not an excuse to like not go to school. We all have difficult things. Like I tried to be a dad, but also like be the reality police, but it just was too many roles and I was messing them all up. Then this morning comes along and I know he's not going to be ready, even though I texted him the night before. But I still waited for him. And then Georgia got so mad at me in the car. She was like, why are you always waiting for him? You're making me late a third day in a row. And she blew up at me. So then she and I got into the screaming argument. I was like, we're going to be fine. Like, it was like a whole thing. And then we were had this cold, frosty standoff on the way to school, which we resolved at the end because sometimes we blow up at each other. But I just felt like I'm doing a terrible job of managing this whole situation. What I should have done was I should have said I'm I should have said I'm really sorry that your film didn't work out. I get it. How can I help? What I should have said was I'm going to pick you up every single day from now until the end of the semester. I'm not going to text you the night before and let you know. That's what's going to happen. I should have said if you're not ready by 8:05, I'm leaving. Nothing personal, but we have to get to school in time. There's so many better ways I should have handled all of this. And I should have relented when he told me that he was feeling depressed about not having his film go right instead of me trying to like be teacher dad and like get everything right. I should have just backed off and given him some emotional space, but I, I couldn't do that because I was offended that he wasn't doing stuff the way I wanted. It's so hard raising teenagers. I just want to acknowledge that. That's all I have to say. 
Oh, you know, man. it's funny. I, I I feel like so with you. Remember last two weeks ago when I was uh, last on the show and I was like, oh, Teddy seems to turn it around. No, he hasn't. Yeah. He has an 18 yeah. in history right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the same thing, the breakdowns, the, the huge emotional depressive breakdowns, they're heartbreaking and they make and they're so infuriating. And it's so easy to talk yeah. about them and say, here are all the things I, I should have done and whatever. But in the moment when it's literally keeping you from being on time for work or yeah. you're when, when it's affecting your other kid who you're also there to protect yes. and help. <laughs> it's yes, really right. hard. It's really hard. Yes. And I, I mean, I can just imagine being in your situation and having the exact same set of feelings and probably like fucking up in all the exact same ways. Um, and I just that feeling of like, I've been through this myself. I got through it. I figured out how to deal with it. I know now how this works. I can help you with this. Just listen to me and I will tell you how to handle this and how to manage it. And if you listen to me, you can skip all of the painful part and yes. just get to the yes. point where you're doing it properly. Like yes. I already see myself doing that and oh, my yeah. kid is only eight, right? Like yes. I, oh my God, I now I have a whole new thing to worry about. It's so great. I mean, because I literally, I'm like, I'm like, I find myself thinking, if you just do everything I say all the time, exactly as I say it, you would have no problems. Like that's, right. that's literally my parenting philosophy, which is absurd. And I really want him to skip the pain. And I really, I should be letting go of that, but it's really hard to let go of. And when they're teenagers and you, the stuff you see them doing is even looks even more like yourself than even than it looked like when they were eight or five or four. It's just overwhelming. And uh, God, I love them so much. And I'm so sad that I put that Georgia like had a point. She was like, why are you waiting for him? And you're making me late. And mm. I, I just I was like overly invested in his shit. And I was causing static with my daughter. It just was bad. And so, you know, the good thing is I get another day probably. And, uh, you know, you just there's a lot of there's a lot of fuck ups to parenting uh, teenagers is, is all I know. Henry gave me his, he said something really interesting. Um, we weren't together for the Thanksgiving week. Kevin and I went away and then they went on a trip with their dad. And Henry was uh, telling me when he got back about, you know, Teddy had been kind of moody and on the trip and whatever. And he was like, here's how I've uh, started to deal with it. I just pretend like I'm watching a movie about Teddy and like he's a character in a movie. And I just like watch it. And, and like some of the scenes are really happy and great. And then other scenes, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And then other scenes, it's like he's really angry or mm -hmm. whatever. He's like, so I just pretend it's a movie and I just pretend it's dialogue. And I just try not to make it like about something real that's really happening <laughs> and I was like it's actually a really interesting way to approach it because yes, he, 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 he's just tired of getting there, drunk and there, he's, there is he's wisdom kind of done that because with the, the drama the key thing yeah. is you're trying not to you're trying to figure out what to take personally and what not to take personally <laughs> exactly, because they exactly. are doing them they're not doing your life they're doing their own life <laughs> and, uh, and the, I think I get tripped up when I start taking it personally and making it about me so in some ways that makes sense. Also, that sounds like the advice of a psychopath. But, it does. You know, both things can be true. It's a both hand situation. <laughs> oh, that's exactly right. <laughs> Rebecca, what about you? Triumph or fail this week? Uh, mine is a very small triumph. I have finally figured out the solution, or at least for now, to a problem that's really small but like super infuriating, which is that, you know, I will admit I still do my kids' laundry, mostly because it just all goes into a giant pile. Like it's done once a week. I usually do it while I'm editing one of the podcasts I edit on Sunday. So it's sort of like, you know, in the in the in the 
in the wheel of chores, it actually makes more sense for me to do it because like, I'm doing it anyway. But anyway, I do their laundry and then I put it in baskets and bring it up to their rooms and leave them there. And then they never come back down. Like they, <laughs> they just never come back down. Like they just pull their shit out of the baskets and wear it that way. And like, I'm, I'm like, I've made this so easy for you guys. All you have to do is put it away. It's all you have to do. Put it away. So um, the solution that I came up with is really dumb, which is basically that I just bought these like under bed storage bins, the kind with wheels that you can just pull out. And now all they literally have to do is dump the stupid laundry basket into this plastic bin. If they choose to fold their stuff and put it away, or if they choose to like take the things I've already folded and put away, great. Or they can just literally dump it all into a different plastic receptacle and give me mine back because I need it for the next time I'm doing laundry. So basically the, the solution here is that what I really care about is A, not having clothes all over their floors because then when they bring up other stuff like sandwiches or whatever, just it's mostly Teddy, who are we kidding? Like food and whatever, like the clothes just sort of adds to it. And the second thing is like, I've done this thing for you. You only have this last step to do. It doesn't have to be exactly the way I want it to be. I just don't want to have to look at it. And I want my damn laundry basket back. So that's a solution. Wheelie bins under the beds, dump your stuff in there if you want. Just give me my basket back. I've taken away like four steps of this process. So far, it seems to be working. I know it sounds like I'm just capitulating to some bad habits. I just don't care anymore. I don't want to fight about it anymore. So uh, it's not maybe a fail, but I'm I'm calling it a triumph. And do not contradict me on that, guys. I don't want to hear it. That's a triumph. No, you're right. I like and that. like it does. At, at this point, they're so close. I mean, eventually, they're gonna have to do their own laundry, and you don't even. It's like it's almost too late to even be trying to enforce it. Just right. eventually, they're gonna be on their own, and they'll have to figure it out some way or another. And at this point, screw it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have um, a, a small scale failure, which is the kind of fail that you're only going to have with a, a four year old as opposed to the kind of failure you're only going to have with a teenager. Every week, Leo goes to swim class. Every week, he complains about swim class. He's in the morning, he wakes up on Tuesday mornings and he's like, I don't want to go to swim class today. I'm sick. <coughs> I can't go to swim class. Instead of a four-year-old pretending to be sick is the funniest, cutest thing ever. Um, in any case, then uh, his babysitter picks him up from school and takes him to swim class. And he at first he protests, but she like wheedles him there, and with a combination of cajoling and bribery and threats of withholding video time or whatever, then um, she gets him in changed into his swimsuit, and then he goes in the pool. And then once he's swimming, then he loves it, and we see vi she shows us she takes videos on her phone, and we see movies of him like doing his swimming or holding the thing and bouncing up and down and it's great and he says he has a great time and now he likes swim class and then the next week the thing starts over again so the babysitter was sick this week and uh genuinely sick i think and not pretending to be sick and so i wound up picking him up from school and taking him to swim class and i knew that this was going to be a production but i was like all geared up and ready and like okay i'm gonna take and i i get to see you swim now i'm so excited to see you swim i don't want to go to swim class no i'm really excited to see you do your great swimming because i see the videos but i i've never actually seen you do your swimming i don't want to go to swim class i'm sick <coughs> so i pick him up at school he really doesn't want to go to swim class he's like literally shouting like i as soon as i see him like the excitement at being picked up by dad, which almost never happens, is immediately lost in the protesting about not wanting to go to swim class. I'm carrying him down the street as he's screaming in my ear about not wanting to go to swim class. We get to the swim class. We go up. So he doesn't want to go. I tell him, you just have to go in and change into your suit. You don't even have to go in the water. It's the way the babysitter told me to do it. He still won't do it. He doesn't want to do it. I drag him into the elevator. I'm like carrying him up. I like 
get him to like I distract him and get him to change like the whole th- it's so much work to get a four year old into swim clothes if they don't want to change into their swimsuit you know what I mean it's such a fucking pain in the ass and then we get into the the pool proper and like there's no chairs and I'm carrying this kid who's screaming at the top of his lungs about how he doesn't want to go swimming and the teacher's all like this is a place where they teach four year olds how to swim they're used to seeing a kid screaming but they're like hey Leo want to go in the pool you ready to play hey this is going to be fun it's a clearly like a nice fun kids swim teacher and he's like no I don't want to go in the ball and like I, we spent the whole time like with him in his bathing suit sitting there like on my lap in a chair not wanting to get even like can we sit on the edge of the pool no I don't want to sit on Anyway, the, the upshot is I didn't get him into the pool and we just sat there and watched some other kids uh, have a swim lesson and sort of felt the money that I was spending on this swim lesson evaporates. <laughs> that, uh, that, that was, so that was my fail. He, he didn't, his, his ability to swim didn't advance at all and now we've reinforced the fact that if he protests enough, he doesn't have to go in the pool. So uh, good job, Dad. Next week, the babysitter will be back and she can have another shot. You know, every time I hear one of these, um, you know, early educate defenses of early education, like preschool and and pre-K and stuff, I'm like, don't you guys realize like the real value here? Yes, is all these other educational benefits later in life. The real value is that when your kid goes to preschool, they teach them how to put on their damn coats and hats and boots like by themselves. And they just kind of get used to that like because they have to because there are like 20 kids. And this is exactly what we're talking about talking about getting your kid into their swim stuff. It's like trying to put like a hot dog back into the casing, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I I mean, I would say that we almost need to have like a preschool situation for those kinds of things for like swim class for uniforms for, you know, putting soccer cleats on for all that like we need a sports or activities uh component of like the pre-k curriculum where kids could learn how to put on other stuff besides just coats hats and boots it'd be really convenient for us as parents don't you think i think that's a great idea everyone would support it nobody would defund it ever again <laughs> you know it's interesting i would love to hear people make us make a strong like for or against for like forcing kids to swim lessons because I got this bug up my ass at some point when my kids were like 11 and 9 or whatever. The, okay, God damn it, you're going to learn how to swim, and you're going to learn how to swim well, and you're going to be Michael Phelps, and that's what's going to happen, and we're going to go. And uh, and they were like, we're not interested. We don't care. Like, we splashing around at the kiddie part of the pool is perfectly fine with us. We feel that our lives lack nothing. But I just decided, it might have been an Olympic year now that I think about it, but I just decided this is going to happen. So I signed up for the lessons and paid the money, and they were like, we don't want to go, and I tried to force them to go, and I... They it never took. They took like two lessons. They barely were interested. They and then when I look back at my own swim thing, that's exactly what happened to me. Like I my like uncle forced me to go to swim lessons at the Y. I took three lessons. I didn't care. And I'm like, why? Why? It's almost like the way my family dealt with church. Like they suddenly were like, we're going to get you baptized. Then they were like, actually, never mind. We don't care. And then they were like, no, we have to get you baptized. <laughs> That's the way that I felt about swimming. It's suddenly I get this like sudden passion to make sure they know how to swim. It's this life or death thing. And then I forget about it. I would love to know why we think it's so important. Or is that like just me or do other people have that? I mean, we have a thing, like we go uh, on a beach vacation every year and my mom, we often go visit my mom in right. LA where she stays in a house with a pool. And so like being able to swim is is sort of a gateway to various fun family activities that we, that we do. So beyond just like wanting to be reassured that my kid is less likely to drown, um, I, I, I feel like it's good. Like with Eliza, she, she took the swimming lessons at this exact same place. She took to it right away. And then like we go 
to the beach and she's like swimming around in the water and it's super fun. And like now, probably next summer, we he still won't be at the point where he can do that. And that's going to super annoy me. Yeah. yeah, I took my kids when they were super young. So I didn't, I mean, I, that's, I was just, somebody told me, like, take them when they're like babies and they'll just learn how to swim and they don't have to deal with it anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. And then when they got a little bit older and their dad wanted to lim- them to, like, continue being on, like, the Y swim program or whatever, they were like, screw that. Like, they didn't like the racing or anything like that. But, like, they learned just, you know, the basics of swimming super young, which I never really did. I think my mom made me go a little bit older, too, and I hated it. And I can, so I'm not going to drown, but I certainly can't do, like, a beautiful, like, crawl stroke or whatever. Who cares um, but, about that? No, but you're not going to be in the Olympics. <laughs> true, That's fine. But true. can you but look my, at the beach? Can, can you that, go in I, the water and swim? Yes. But you know what? They, I know they would not have cared or learned it if I had brought them any older than like when we ever did, which was like three. And we took them really, mm. really young, three, four, five. And the same with skiing. Like my kids would never in a million years probably would have been interested in learning how to do this thing. And the only, I mean, the main thing here, it's like a very social thing. Like oh, there's, an, there's an after school ski program. Like most kids ski so it's just kind of a thing that people learn how to do i cannot imagine like trying to drag them there when they were even like eight to learn how to do it it's basically one of those things is like if you can walk let's take you to do this and you'll know how to do it i don't have to worry about it anymore it's like ripping a band-aid off so i i don't know i think maybe that might be the problem maybe you start a little bit late but if if they're not going to drown i mean obviously not drowning is the most important thing right i mean if you you don't walk by a pool fall in and then not be able to get out that's i think the main compelling argument that I've always heard, right? Yes. Now that we're talking about this, I'm a little worried because I seem to remember somebody telling me or reading something that was like, actually, swimming lessons don't prevent your kid from drowning. You know how with drowning, <laughs> like, just, you, sh- you should never stop worrying about drowning. Yes, like, you should never always, stop worrying there, about drowning. Like, right. it, it doesn't matter if you're, like, if you're on top of a mountain in the desert and there's no water around, you should still always be aware that there's the risk <laughs> that your child could drown. You know what That's I mean? That's right. Yes. Um, yes. So, like, I just, let's be clear swim lessons don't uh, provide water safety in any way for anybody but um i don't know like i want my kids to be able to swim in a pool or 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 in the ocean um you just you just want to be able to relax on the beach when you should never ever never relax that's the the first lesson of parenting is that you absolutely shouldn't relax especially especially around water it should be fun for them but not for you especially if there's water around yeah but so i want them to go swimming so that they can have fun swimming and i can worry about them drowning yep Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before we move on, let's do the business. As always, if you have a question, we will answer that question maybe. Uh, You can call and leave us a message on our voicemail. It's 424-255-7833. Or you can type out your question and send it to us via the email protocol using the address momanddad at slate.com. 
Also, uh, if you enjoy using Facebook, and who doesn't, check out our Facebook group. Go on Facebook, search for Slate Parenting. It's a really fun community, and uh, we moderate it so the conversations stay on track and do not tend to cause genocide or uh, swing the results of elections. Join our Facebook group today, Slate Parenting. On Slate Plus today, um, we're going to do one in a regular series where Rebecca tells us the real dish on her children's love lives. Um, Slate Plus members get to find out just who Henry and Teddy are dating and how that's going. Apparently, there's a juicy update today if you want to hear that segment and another like it every week. Join Slate Plus, slate.com slash mom and dad plus. It's just $35 for your first year. You get an extra segment on this and many other Slate shows every week. None of your podcasts have ads in them. Your Slate podcasts, other podcasts from other networks do continue to have ads, even for Slate Plus members. There's only so much we can do. In any case, $35 for your first year, slate.com slash mom and dad plus. Okay, let's go. We have a guest on the program today. Noel Murray is a freelance pop culture writer who lives in Arkansas. He contributed today's cover story on Slate Magazine, The 40 Greatest Family Games. It's about the games you should play with your family and about what it means to play games with your family. It's also about the games you should never play with your family because they're bullshit. Noel, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, so let me ask you first, you talk in, in the introduction to this piece, you talk about, uh, game families, families that, that make playing games like a regular part of their family life. And, and I assume that you're part of a game family. How often do you guys play games? And, and also could you let us know how many children do you have and how old are they? Sure. I have two kids. Uh, they're both teenagers. Uh, my son is 17 years old. My daughter is 14 years old. Uh, we've played games with them, you know, pretty much their entire lives. Um, but really almost more recently, now that they've gotten older and the, and the games we can play with them are more complex. Um, I would say, you know, we don't play every weekend, but we do play a lot during the breaks. So like over the summertime, uh, we'll play one or two games every single weekend. And, you know, during the upcoming holiday break, we'll probably play a game or two every single day. Uh, my, my, my son designs these elaborate game tournaments where we get points based upon how well we do from game to game and he converts those points into coins and then we can use those coins to buy advantages and it's a very it's it's like basically like like, like a video game in real life like, like mario party in real life so basically uh, he's he's gamified gaming he has gamified <laughs> gaming it's absolutely correct uh all right so maybe first of all what are, what are some of the games that you guys are playing right now what games are you going to play over the summer uh, well, you know, uh, we play multiple different versions of, of Ticket to Ride, which is which I, I wrote about in the in the uh, in the package as my as my favorite uh, game franchise. Um, you know, we'll also play uh, Carcassonne. We'll play Catan. Um, uh, many people have told us to try this game Azul, which I bought about a month ago, and I've only played once, and so I'm looking forward to playing more Azul. Uh, many of the games are in that package. You know, Camel Up. Um, uh, Colt Express, uh, a lot of the modern tabletop games uh, are the ones we play. The ones that take usually about 45 minutes to an hour to play. So these are games that people who are not serious about gaming, who haven't really paid attention to gaming, uh, these are not going to be like the default games like Monopoly or Clue or, or the games that everybody knows and that often people reach for as gifts or in a store just because they're the familiar thing. What is it that makes these games better than those more familiar kinds of games? 
Well, I think what they do is they take some of the, um, you know, what, what, what gamers call the mechanics of the game, not just the rules, but uh, the experience of the game, the design of it, the way it feels to play it. Um, you know, the things that, that the older games sometimes didn't pay attention to, like um, when your turn comes around, uh, you know, can you actually do something? There are some games like Monopoly where after about three or four turns, unless you're, you know, uh, the, the, the person who's ahead, you basically have your turn where you go around the, go around the board and give people money. That's all you do. Um, and kind of the fun of, there's not much, not a whole lot of fun in that. So, so what you want is a game that's got some kind of balance to it where you're actually able to, even if you're losing each turn, you still have something you can do where you can feel like you've got a chance to get back into the game. Um, so I think the modern games have actually, uh, you know, taken all that stuff into account because people who made those games grew up playing the older games that have their flaws. Um, so in the piece, you list the five commandments for a great family game. What are those commandments? Well, they should be the right length. I mean, I mentioned before that uh, the games we play tend to be about 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, a lot of these more grinding games like Risk that can go on for three hours, they can be really exhausting. Uh, they should be fair, meaning that, you know, uh, no, no matter what piece you're playing, no matter where you sit, no matter who goes first, uh, you, you still feel like you have a good chance to win. Um, like I just mentioned, they should be action-packed. You should have something to do on every single turn. Uh, I, I mentioned that they should help you learn something, and I don't mean that some kind of, you know, drippy educational way, like like you're playing a game about zoo animals and you're going to learn about zoo animals. I, I I mean more that you know you know after the game you can have a conversation with your children about uh, fair play or about strategy or you kind of you, you know you go through and do sort of a uh, um, a walk a, a walk through in reverse of the game and talk about what you did and why. And that's very helpful. And then lastly, I think they should encourage spontaneity because, you know, what I think, you know, family game night brings to families is that you create these stories that you're, you're going to tell for years and years. We have, I'd say roughly, you know, two thirds of the quotes uh, that we drop around this house are things that one of us said during a game, you know, that we, that we then repeat, you know, forever. So um, uh, you know, when you have a game that has a more spontaneous feel where you can make jokes and, and, and you know, make your own contributions to it. Uh, that's what creates those memories. So I want to ask about card games, and Uno is a card game, and you also have concentration in this list, but I wonder how you conceive of or categorize sort of collective card games, which I know are their own category, but things like Chin Rummy, Cribbage, like, do you see those as a separate family category, or how do you sort of, like, consider those in, in your kind of taxonomy of family games? No, we, we play those too. Uh, we don't play as many card games that aren't, you know, what you would call a branded card game like Uno or Phase 10, where you buy a deck and it has special cards in there. Those are the mm -hmm. ones we play more often. We just played uh, a game called Rage with my family uh, over Thanksgiving. Um, that's basically a version of an old, an old card game that my mom, my mom knew when she was growing up as Oh Hell. And it has mm -hmm. many other names, I think. Uh, but anyway, there's a branded version of it called Rage um, that we played. Um, we, we, we mix in a lot of different kinds. We play board games, we play tile laying games like Quirkle, um, and then and then card games as well. Um, the, you know, the thing with those card games is that you know um, you have to decide going into it what your parameters are going to be. Like, are you going to play until somebody gets to 500 points, or are you going to play just 150 mm -hmm. points, or you know? And a lot of times we just start playing and then see how long it's taking, <laughs> and then we and then <laughs> at some random point, like after about half an hour, we say, okay, we're playing to 400 because we're close to that, you know, yeah, uh, whatever it might be. So um, there's another piece of this package, which is a list of the 10 worst family games, um, which yeah. 
contains some uh, familiar favorites like Candyland and Monopoly and the Game of Life, all of which I have found myself playing over the past couple of years because my children found them at their grandparents' house, and and I'm not going to defend any of those games. They're terrible. Um, what is the game that you have to play for eternity in hell? <laughs> uh, boy, that's a really good question. I, you know, um, I'd say Operation would be uh, you know, really high up on that list. I mean, that actually seems like a, like a torture you know device, doesn't it? I mean, you have to sit there and use your little steady hands to reach into a, a tiny little thing, and you know, yeah, no, Operation is. Uh, it's not even a game, really, is it? I mean, I, I know that there's that you get points for picking the things out of the, out of the little guy, but has anybody ever thought to themselves, oh, yes, I remember when I was a kid and I won that game of Operation. No one remembers that. All you remember is how nerve-wracking it was to play that thing. <laughs> Good pick. Well, I think, I, I always think that games like that, I think the Candyland Operation are games meant to be played without adults. That was always my read on it, that, like, the reason they were so, like, horrifically boring for adults um, is because adults weren't really supposed to be playing them. They were, whereas, like, games like Monopoly and, and Life, Life is terrible, but games like Monopoly and Life are supposed to be family games. In other words, all ages are there. But that the spit, like Hungry Hungry Hippos, um, Monopoly, I mean, not Monopoly, mm-hmm. um, Perfection, uh, Operation, things like that specifically were for kids to do alone when no adults were around. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I, that's something I think about a lot when people talk about um, uh, TV shows or music that their kids like that they can't stand. And I think to myself, well, you're, you know, you don't have to be there. <laughs> that's, the whole, that's why you have the TV is you put you put the kid in front of the TV and they watch the terrible show and you go <laughs> right. somewhere else in the, in the other yes, part of the house. You don't have to watch something Paw Patrol. Else. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, come on. Um, but no, that's that's true with games as well. But, but I, I do think a lot of these games, the kids don't play them until somebody shows them how. And so that's why you end up getting roped into playing Candyland or just, you know, in general, you know, a kid gets bored and they reach onto their shelf and pull the game down and, and, you know, tug you on your sleeve. And, you know, it's hard to say no to that little face when they want to play the game. So, so the next worst. thing you know, you're trying to stop uh, Lord Licorice or whatever. Uh, and I should let me ask you the reverse of the question about the game you're playing in hell. What's the game that you can imagine if you live to be 100 and your wife also lives to be 100? What game will the two of you be playing with each other in the old folks home when when you're 100 years old? Well, that's an excellent question. My my wife's parents um, actually played uh, Sorry like at dinner time every night for I don't know how long. It was many many years until until her mom got a little too uh, was unable to move the pieces anymore, and you know so that 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 ended. Um, and the two of them have played cribbage a lot. I think when 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 they were younger, and my wife and I have also used to play cribbage sometimes during dinner. I, you know, I, I don't know what it, what it will eventually be. You know, as I mentioned in the in the uh, the piece, my favorite uh, game is Ticket to Ride. Um, and I there are so many variations of Ticket to Ride. There are so many different boards that I imagine that she and I could play, um, you know, a different version of Ticket to Ride, uh, you know, every night for, for eternity and be quite happy. That's a nice thought. On that list of the 10 worst family games, um, we had some people write defenses of, of some of the games on the 10 worst list. And our own Rebecca Lavoie wrote a defense of Clue. Um, I did. First of all, maybe, Noel, tell us what's wrong with Clue. And then, <laughs> Rebecca, you can defend it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's possible to play a really good game of Clue because the basic, you know, the core of Clue is a logic problem, like the kind you would do in grade school or junior high, where, you know, you try to figure out by crossing things out on a little grid 
you know, what the answer you're looking for is. The problem is that when you do logic problems in school, you can't just guess, right? You can't just end up accidentally getting it right. You have to actually go through meticulously bit by bit. And my problem I have with Clue is that that, that game could take the full run of the game, which is like 30 minutes or 40 minutes, or it could be over in like five minutes. It's possible that somebody could guess <laughs> the thing right exactly the first time, just randomly. It also could be that based upon what cards you have in your hand, um, you know where you don't have to go. And so your little guy, you know, your, your, your Professor Peacock or Professor Plum or, you know, Mrs. Peacock can just kind of go back and forth to the same couple of rooms, whereas somebody else has to traverse the entire board. And so it violates the spirit of, 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 uh, of fairness, I was talking about before, um, where if you, ha- if you happen if you happen to be a certain person, you get a break, and somebody else has to do something else. Uh, so, th- so the combination of those two things—the combination of lucky guesses and and it being you know imbalanced depending on what kind of cards you get—is why I think you know there there are better ways to do a logic problem than to play a game of Clue around it. Yeah, I think you're missing the point there because uh, it is a terrible (laughs) game in terms of like, you know, satisfaction and game playing. But the accoutrement are awesome. There's like the detective pad and like a little case file envelope. And the one thing that the guessing and that kind of unfairness brings to it that can really work, especially if you have siblings and you're the youngest, which I was, is that you could actually win by making a stupid guess. (laughs) And when you're like the youngest of three girls, you know, making that stupid guess and winning and feeling triumphant as you hold your little case file envelope in your hand and all that stuff. I just remember I have a lot of nostalgia wrapped in it. Let's just put it that way. Plus, you know, I loved the the rooms. I love the fact there was a conservatory and a billiards room and all that stuff. It's just very like atmospheric and fun. And I got to play a character called Miss Scarlet every time. So for me, it's definitely more about nostalgia. I, I, I understand it. I mean, I think with a lot of these games I, you know, that, I, that, I, that I think are quote unquote bad games, you know, there are elements to the game that are good, but you can, you could do those elements in some other way. Like, like Mousetrap, for example, the fun part is building the mousetrap and setting it, setting it loose. Well, you can do that without playing a game. You can just build a mousetrap. So Clue, you could play detective. You could you could pretend to be Miss Scarlet and walk around the house with a case file and you know and and, and, and and say now I'm in the conservatory. You know, I mean it's 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 you know it's all fine. <laughs> and that's exactly what I wrote that I used to do when I played when I was a kid. <laughs> Noel Murray, thank you so much for being with us. Um, the piece is the Forty Greatest Family Games. It's on the front page of Slate.com right now. We'll put it on our show page and in the Facebook group. Time for us to take a question from a listener. This one came to us by email, momanddad at slate.com, if you want to send us a question. Uh, it's being read for us today by Slate Podcasting's own June Thomas. Dear Mom and Dad of Fighting, my husband and I are atheists and are not fans of religion in general. My in-laws are quite religious. Generally, we all have a silent agreement not to discuss this topic, but they are aware of how we feel. We have two kids, six and seven years old. Today, the kids told me that when at grandma's house, she makes them put their hands together and say, we thank you, God, for our food before eating. I have to admit, this enrages me. So I am trying to hold back and take a breath before talking to my mother-in-law about it. I'd like to know your thoughts. How would you handle this? And would you care? I feel so angry that she is imposing her own beliefs on my children. But maybe you'll tell me I'm crazy. Thanks. Is this letter writer crazy? <laughs> She's not crazy. She's not crazy. I had the same exact feeling when my kids were little. I'm an atheist. 
I don't really get religion. I It's not something I wanted my kids to be forced to do. And yet I was constantly threatened by the prospect of my in-laws secretly getting my kids baptized when they were babysitting them one day. Um, and I had the same feelings of like anger and like, how dare you? And that's not... And then I don't how know how I got to this place, but eventually the place that I got to was realizing that, you know what, uh, A, if my in-laws baptized my baby children when I wasn't around, like, I would never know, right? So if it made them happy and then I never knew, I mean, really, what's the worst that could possibly happen? But also that this idea of, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, we don't pray at our house, but... I'm not necessarily thinking that what I want to, the message I want to sort of say to my kids is that when you go to other people's homes and they do have religious beliefs and they do say grace before dinner, that you should just do what? Just say, I don't do that and leave. Um, so I, I do think you can reach some sort of compromise here. There's obviously an issue of kind of just control, of respect, of boundaries, of you feeling like your in-laws are not paying attention to what your wishes and desires and values are. But there's also an opportunity here to, instead of I, what I always letter writers, what was the thing she said, a silent agreement? How about making a non-silent agreement? How about agreeing that, you know, you're, you're not raising your kids to be religious. They kind of have to be okay with that. But you also understand that they are religious. And when, you know, they're, the kids are in their home, that maybe saying grace before dinner is something that's okay. But the message with, to your kids is going to be like, people have different feelings about this. And, you know, when we're at people's homes where they do this, we respect those feelings and we play along, even if it's not something that's in our hearts because it's polite. Uh, there are ways to write, you know, not unspoken agreements about this. And I would suggest that this is one of those areas where it's worth doing that uh, for the sake of the relationship, for the sake of teaching your kids a little bit about tolerance and about that uh, people believe different things than your family, your nuclear family perhaps believes. But no, you're not crazy to have those feelings because I can certainly relate to them. And I remember having them very clearly myself. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like you're not, I don't think you're crazy for having those feelings. I, this ever, the, the atheist question is really interesting to me. It always, um, I remember answering a, a letter early in my tenure in the, um, in the slate care and feeding column where someone had said, you know, we're atheists and we actually think that people who believe in religion are stupid. How do we tell our children that people, that these people are kind of idiotic, but without being judgmental. And, uh, I thought, well, I sort of thought that same thing about that, that I do about this, which is that you don't, not you not believing in God, which I think is a legitimate uh, and valid way to look at the world. I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence for for believing in God. And so I think it's perfectly rational and reasonable if someone doesn't believe in God. I don't think that's the same as thinking as believing that other people shouldn't believe in God and that and that other people shouldn't experience their God belief in your presence. I think that's where it gets a little wonky. Um, I so. I understand the feeling of feeling overwhelmed by other people expressing their God belief in your presence, especially grandparents and in-laws, because there's already existing control issues there. And this represents those. Um, I don't know that. I think I think the the key thing is like Rebecca says, I think there is a little bit of like just sort of accepting because religion is a lot about ritual and ritual is a lot about culture. And if you go to someone else's house and they say, Hey, we take off our shoes here. You usually will just take off your shoes at the door 
You won't be like, well, I believe in wearing shoes in the house. And so, like, I'm mad that you're forcing me to take my shoes off. You might be vaguely annoyed, but you're still going to do it because it's not that big a deal. And so I wonder why praying before a meal or saying something like, dear God, thank you for this food, is feels different to people. I think that's I think it's different to do that than it is to baptize your kid. I think the baptizing thing is a whole different thing because it's about oh, yeah. like, sort of indoctrination <laughs> into but but even there, I would personally would take the tack that Rebecca took like who fucking cares? It doesn't matter to me, it doesn't matter to the kid. No one fucking cares, it makes them happy. Whatever. I would but I wouldn't advise other people to take that tack because other people take it more seriously. But I think saying like literally a four word prayer before eating at someone else's house who is feeding your kid is about the same as being asked to take off your shoes or use a coaster at someone else's house. I think they're about the same. And I don't think it's necessary to like imbue it with all this other shit and emotional stuff that people have about religion. I think it's fine if people believe in God. I think it's fine if people don't believe in God. I myself don't literally do not care if anyone believes in God or doesn't. I actually think it doesn't matter. And um, if there is or isn't a God or if anyone believes or doesn't believe in God, I just don't give a fuck. And so I think everyone should just fucking get out of everyone's shit with that. And so if if your kids are out of someone's house and the people are feeding them and the people are nice and the only like thing in return for the feeding them is having them say, hey, thanks for the food to some invisible power have them fucking say this fucking thing and then eat the food and then get on with their lives. That's my advice. <laughs> That's pretty good. I, um, you know, I'm an atheist and my parents were atheists. I was raised an atheist, but I, I wound up, I grew up in England and I wound up going to Church of England schools. So I've sat through a lot of sermons and I've sung a lot of hymns and I, I know the Bible pretty well, which is a neat thing to have if you are a literate yes. person. And, totally. um, and I, I think the experience of like sitting through a 15 minute schoolboy church service when you yourself are aware that you don't believe in all of the stuff that's being said and that your family doesn't either, that's not a bad experience for a kid to have. Like, and you know that of all the other kids out there listening to the vicar preach about whatever, uh, parable of the Good Samaritan or whatever it is, you know that like some of them are into it. And some of them are like you and know that we don't believe in this thing. And most of them aren't even listening at all. But like it's an interesting social phenomenon that's happening. And a lot of people do go to church and exactly. do believe in this stuff. And like it's just quite an interesting experience to have. And like there's plenty of things that I resent my parents for like, oh, you did this wrong during my childhood or whatever. But sending me to schools where that was part of my education is not a thing that I have any hostility towards them for. Um, and and I think um, – you know, getting mad at, at the kids' grandparents for asking them to participate in the common social ritual of saying grace before a meal feels like – it feels like the main advantage of being an atheist is not that you get to then stand up and declare the values of atheism. It's that you get to not really give a shit about whether we say this thing before dinner or not. So, exactly. So you're, you're kind of sacrificing the main benefits of your worldview in order to get up on a high horse about this. And I don't think that's crazy. I think it's very human. But I think you might find you have an easier time if you choose to take the path of least resistance and be like, well, as an atheist, I don't even have to care. Uh, and I don't think it's going to like turn your kids Jesus freaks um, saying thanks to God before eating. Oh, this meal was really delicious. I bet there's a God who put it in front of us. I don't think that's going to happen. So I wouldn't worry about it. Thanks for writing. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. 
Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's now the part of the show uh, that we call recommendations. Um, Let's just do the part and then you can infer what it is that we do during this part of the show that we call recommendations. Rebecca, you want to go first? Yeah, I've got a really weird one. I'm just going to say it up front. Like they mine are usually pretty weird, but this one is extra weird and it's just based on a phenomenon that I have noticed in my house, which is that there is only one TV show that all of the teenage kids that we live with will come running to watch with us, even though you could make a case that it's a completely inappropriate show to watch with your family, but it's one we love watching together uh, for a variety of reasons, mostly because sometimes it's inadvertently hilarious and overly dramatic and fun, even though it's about a very serious subject matter, is Law and Order SVU. SVU. My kids yes. freaking love watching this show with us. <laughs> I know My it. son Teddy will turn off. I couldn't wait until finally said it. <laughs> yes, he will. He will turn off his. He'll, he'll like be in one of those group video games on his PC, and he will have been in there for hours or playing a D and D session online. He will turn it off to come watch SVU with us. Henry will stop doing whatever important thing he's 17-year-old doing and come watch SVU with us. If Lily is home from college, she will come up from her basement lair and watch SVU with us. I don't know why. It is the glue on the TV that holds our family together, and we can hypothesize about it all day. But if you know your kids are into watching SVU, obviously I wouldn't recommend it for super little kids because you're going to have conversations you don't want to have. I don't know. It brings my family together. So maybe you should give it a try, too. It sounds like it works for Carvel as well. Cool. I'm excited to start watching SVU with Leo and Eliza. That, that's going to be a great family it's entertainment. Just such, it's just it's such a great show. But yes, it should not. you should not watch it with kids younger than like 16. Right, Rebecca? Isn't that what? I mean, yeah, yeah. Henry Rowan is writing one of his college essays about SVU, yeah. about how the, the show has become so socially liberal while it becomes uh, more values-wise, more conservative. Like it's this whole absolutely. Like, the hypothesis it's a work of he art, has. And, and I, I feel like I, I feel like I, you and I, one of the things I love about you, I feel like I have to hold myself from preaching the gospel of SVU everywhere I go. <laughs> It does this impossible thing. It's ridiculous. It's hilarious. It's campy. It's fucking, it's like emotional. I don't know how they do what they do, but it's fucking brilliant. And I never want to stop watching it. It's just entertainment at its best and worst. And it makes your kids woke as hell around issues of consent and sexual assault. My kids are super woke around those issues. (laughs) Yes. I love it. I love it. All right. I I also have a like a family TV watching recommendation, but it's it's from the opposite end of the spectrum. Okay, this comes from something we spent Thanksgiving with with my in laws, their grandparents, and and their grandfather made a suggestion like after dinner one night, and it was like it's the time when we're about to do bedtime, and like they don't watch videos right before bedtime because it gets them all hyped up. But he made a suggestion, and like we were like, fuck it, fine, let's go. That it's vacation time. He said, why don't we put on the sound of music and watch the first half hour? 
So we did that. We like it's on Apple TV or whatever, and we put on the sound of music and we watched the first half hour. And usually, getting Leo, who is only four, to watch uh, like what he calls a grown-up movie, which is to say a movie that's not a cartoon about superheroes or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, it's usually like pulling teeth. Like we tried to get him into the Great British Bake Off, and like we all loved it, but he just <laughs> now he like screams when we try to put it on. He's so annoying. Um, but he agreed. <laughs> he agreed to check out the sound of music, and we put on the first half hour. And as I was putting him to bed that night, I like left the room, and I heard him like under the covers singing to himself how do you solve a problem like maria (laughs) and he got really into it and so when we got home we picked up where we had left off and we watched like the next 20 minutes before bed and then the next day and we've been watching it in like 20 or 30 minute increments every night that is a long ass movie like there is no way my kids would sit still for like two and a half hours it's also really slow in places there's no way my (laughs) kids would sit still for two and a half hours of like look there's fields and it's a bunch of nuns walking around and now after 20 minutes Julie Andrews is going to sing a song um, but if you watch it in 20 minute increments it becomes like a sort of mini series and there's always one big number that like resolves something and then that you, there's always a good moment for you to turn the thing off there's like natural breaking points and they're really into it and we're really into it and now we play a game where like I be the dad who's like no there will be no singing and dancing and then they're like but father we want to do singing and dancing and it's, it's just really, it's really fun um, so that's my recommendation is watch the sound of music in 20 minute increments every night with your kids. Um, the most, the most, the most underrated aspect of that show for parenting is that it models how kids should go to bed like no other piece of media. That's it is right. the best go to bed propaganda night, ever created. You just slide it in there. You make them think that you're just showing them a movie, but really you are getting in their little souls with, yo, this is how you go to bed. Anything other than this is bullshit. I'm sick of your shit. You sing a song and you take your ass to bed and that's how you do it. So, yes. Very Be brilliant. like the Von Trapp children. <laughs> uh, um... My recommendation is, it sounds like I'm doing a, a self-plug, but I swear to God I'm not. I So I, I reviewed this book for the New York Times um, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, this is also for teenagers, And but I'm recommending the book. It's called um, We Say Never Again, and it is about the Parkland shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School that took place February 14th of this year, of 2018. Um, some people know that those kids became activists, but a lot of the reason they became activists is because they were already student journalists with a very, um, ambitious and well-run student journalism program happening at that school when this story happened. And so the book we say never again is a collection of their writings, all the teenagers at that school, their essays and reflections on what happened that day, what they learned in that experience, what they learned going out into the world to advocate for change, what they, what they experienced, how they dealt with being teenagers and also being activists and also being at the center of the story and also being reporters who are supposed to take an objective stance on a story that they are at the center of. It's a truly amazing book. And there's something incredibly, uh, I don't want to say hopeful, but I do want to say hopeful. I'll say there's something hopeful, the resilience. And again, these all sound like cliches, but something about the way these kids write about what they're supposed to do is just, I found it incredibly powerful and affecting for me as a writer, for me as a journalist, for me as a person. There's a big question right now about that I think a lot of people are holding is like, here's this world unfolding in ways that a lot of people don't like. What do you do? We People feel powerless. They feel like they just sit on Twitter and watch this horrible feed of horrible things and they feel powerless to stop it. And there's something about the way these kids write about their experience and the actions they took afterwards that really seems to point the way towards this is what you do when things fall apart. 
this is how you go forward. And the book does an incredible job of capturing that. It's called We Say Never Again. It's stu- it's writings by the student journalism class at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And I will link to, well, I, I did a review of it last week for the New York Times, and I will throw the link for that on the Facebook page. And that's my recommendation. Great. Uh, and that's our show. If you have a question that you would like us to tackle, you can call us at 424-255-7833 or send us an email at momanddad at slate.com. Uh, you can discuss this episode. You can discuss gaming. You can discuss atheism and saying grace uh, all on our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Slate Parenting, or more simply, just go to Facebook and search for Slate Parenting. Uh, it's a really fun conversation. Our show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoy, I'm Gabriel Roth, and we'll see you next week. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.